It's a busy time. It's a busy season for us. Let me say this. Even in the middle of a busy season, many things going on, the most important thing that we could think about today is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so we're going to dive right into the scriptures. We are, as a church, going through the book of Hebrews together in a sermon series called The Sermon God Wrote. This is uh, the second half of chapter 9. We're really in kind of an extended argument from the author of Hebrews about how the new covenant in Jesus is far superior, far better than the first covenant that was given under Moses. And we're going to talk a lot today about blood. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read through this passage straight through. We're going to tackle 11 verses today, a big section. I'll read straight through it, we'll pray, and then we'll spend some time unpacking it together. So, Let's turn our attention now to God's word. Starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood." For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sins. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, for myself, I I come before you and even just admit a busy weekend, a, a million things going on. God, it would be easy for me to have my mind focused on other things besides you. God, for many of my friends, it's not only the church moving and the busy season, but God, we have things going on in our personal lives and things going on in our communities, things going on in our nation, our world that that vie for our attention. And so Holy Spirit, I'm asking right now that you would fill this room and you would fill our hearts, that we might have our minds and our hearts and our eyes and our ears focused on Jesus Christ above all else. Whatever's going on in our lives, whatever's going on circumstantially, I pray that we would hear and understand this message of the goodness of God revealed in Christ's blood being shed for us. God, would you guard my lips, help me to only teach 
that which is in line with the truth from your word. And God, would you give each and every one of us soft and teachable hearts that we might grow to look more like Jesus in whose good name we pray. And everybody said, amen. All right, I wanna start with a little bit of a confession. I am not particularly good with blood. Uh, I know some of you work in the medical field. Some of you are first responders. God bless you. I can't see blood and not get a little bit woozy. How many of you are with me? You just don't like blood. Okay, I'll tell you a story. When my second daughter was born, she was born via C-section. And uh, the way they have it set up is my wife's laying there on the operating table and there's kind of a, a drape and I'm sitting on a, a chair up by her head and the anesthesiologist is also standing up there by her head and we're kind of, you know, we're like the, the crew that's not really doing much at that moment. The surgeons are kind of working on the abdomen and, and there's this nice sheet so I can't see anything. Well, the anesthesiologist goes, hey, you know, Aaron, you want to you see this, right? No, no, I don't. I think I'm good, man. He goes, no, come on. This is, the, this is the birth of your daughter. This is a miraculous event. This is a special moment. You want to see this? I'm like, no, nah, I'm good to see her later. I'll catch it later. <laughs> and he, he kind of said, no, come on. He was very convincing. It was early in the morning. I was still tired. And so he kind of takes me by the arm and he starts lifting up my arm. And I'm kind of like, all right. I kind of start standing up and he puts his hand on the drape. He starts lowering down the drape. And I, and I look and there I see my wife's abdomen with a little hand sticking out of it. And the next thing I remember, I woke up in another room being given smelling salts by a nurse. <laughs> I can actually hear my wife from the other room in the OR be like, where'd my husband go? I'm like, I'm sorry, I passed out, Okay. Not particularly good with blood. Here's the thing. If you've read the Bible at all, you know that it is a bloody book. And if you're familiar with Christian faith and Christian practice, you know that it is a blood-drenched faith. One of the practices of the church every single week, or at least for many churches as often as they celebrate it, is the celebration of the Lord's table in which we commemorate, we eat a meal that commemorates that our Savior, our founder, had his blood literally drained from his body, that he was executed on our stages and on our walls. We have a cross, a symbol of execution. You read through the Bible. It is a blood-drenched and blood-soaked book. And as we turn our attention to this passage in Hebrews chapter 9, you see this theme of blood coming up over and over and over again. The author of Hebrews keeps talking about the blood of Jesus versus the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of Jesus versus the, the blood of animals that were sacrificed. And, and even though he's talking about these practices that to us seem rather arcane or they seem rather foreign, I think the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make in this section is crystal clear, and it's this, better blood brings better results. Better blood brings better results. That's the point of this passage. And let me just start by talking briefly about the idea of blood, because for us, we, we have kind of an interesting mindset or an interesting relationship with blood. First of all, I would say we live in a very sanitized culture. Some of you work in the medical field. Some of you are first responders. But for the vast majority of us, we don't see, we don't interact with blood very often. Uh, you know, maybe a few of you might have grown up on a farm, but for the most of us, we, we get our meat from a grocery store, from a butcher shop. Somebody else does the dirty work of killing those animals and cutting them up, unless your name is Pastor Travis and you're from Texas, right? Somebody else does that work behind the scenes and we don't have to see that. Even when we watch TV or we watch movies and we see blood on the screen, we know that it's fake. We know that it's not real. We live in kind of a sanitized, cleaned up culture. But I would also submit to you that when it comes to the idea of blood, we live in a hypocritical culture. 
Because we like to say things like, oh, you know, we're, we're very enlightened, we're very sophisticated. You know, you hear people say things like, all this blood sacrifice in the Bible, it's barbaric, it's arcane, it's beneath us. We've matured, we've evolved as a society, we've evolved as a culture, and yet in the last hundred years, we've seen 141 million people killed in war. And in the last 40 years in the United States of America alone, we've seen 58 million plus babies aborted in the womb. We as a nation are the only one that's actually dropped an atomic bomb, two atomic bombs on another nation. We see movies and TV just glamorizing and glorifying violence. You see sports like you know, ultimate fighting and cage fighting, just a meteoric rise. The more supposedly enlightened and sanitized our culture becomes, the more our thirst for blood actually shows up. I think we're a hypocritical culture when it comes to blood. The other thing we have to think about is we we think about blood differently than the people who would have received this first sermon, this this sermon, what we now call the letter to the Hebrews. See, in our culture, we think of blood mostly from a scientific standpoint. We know things about blood types. We know things about white blood cells and red blood cells. We, We learn about these things in school. But But for the ancients, and and for all intents and purposes, the majority of human history, people have thought more about blood in a spiritual sense than just in a purely physiological sense. Let me read you a quote from one scholar named Archibald Kennedy. This is what he says. By the Hebrews, as by other peoples of antiquity, the blood, both of man and beast, was regarded as the seat of the soul. That's an important phrase. The seat of the soul, that is the vital principle common to all sentient organisms. Blood is life. Blood is where life is to be found. If you don't have blood in you, you're not alive. Even a plant has a form of blood in it and a rock does not. When we reflect how little we know, Notwithstanding all our advance in physiology and allied sciences, the, the, uh, how little we know of the mystery of life and death, we can in some measure realize the emotions of awe and dread with which the early Semites must have regarded the shedding of blood. What he's saying is when, when people would have heard this, all this talk about blood and spilling blood and sacrifices, it would have rattled them in a different way maybe than it does for you and for me. Another quote from Holman Bible Dictionary, I think they define this really well, says this, blood and life or living being are closely associated. The words are actually really closely associated. The Hebrews of Old Testament times were prohibited from eating blood. And he quotes from Deuteronomy, only be sure not to eat the blood for the blood is the life and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. For agricultural people, This command stressed the value of life. Though death was ever present, life was sacred and life was not to be regarded cheaply. Today, as we talk about blood, we need to understand the value, the significance, the importance of blood. And if you're like me, where maybe you're not particularly comfortable with the idea of blood, there's there's maybe a little bit of a barrier we have to push through because here's the deal. In the blood of Jesus our life is found. It's in his death that we find true life. And we're gonna see, the author of Hebrews is gonna point out very clearly four incredible things that you and I receive. When we receive the grace of God, uh, when we receive salvation through the blood of Jesus, we receive four incredible things. We receive an eternal redemption. We receive a clean conscience. 
We receive a rich inheritance and we receive a costly forgiveness. These are the four things we're going to see very clearly. Eternal redemption, a clean conscience, a rich inheritance, and a costly forgiveness. So let's, let's look at these four. Starting back in, in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest... We've talked about Jesus as a high priest. We've, we've spent a lot of time speaking of this, so I'm not going to rehash all of this, but Jesus is, as a high priest, our representative who goes before God on our behalf. He's a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation. Pause again. Last week, the passage we looked at, and Pastor Travis did a fantastic job of preaching on, was this idea that there's a tent, there's a tabernacle where people were invited to draw near in worship to God. But that was just a precursor. That was just a symbol. Now, Jesus has entered directly into heaven. The tabernacle, the tent was just a, a shadow, a signpost pointing forward to the real thing that was to come, and now it's Jesus. And Jesus has now entered into that true tent. How? Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. See, in the tabernacle, the priests would go into the temple, would go into the tabernacle, and they would go into the holy place in order to offer a sacrifice. But it was, it was a sacrifice of bulls and goats. But see, with Jesus, he, here's what's so remarkable. He's our high priest who goes in, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. Friends, it is an amazing thought that Jesus, our high priest, would die for us. And that the sacrifice he would offer would not be a, a temporary sacrifice of an animal, but would be a, a permanent sacrifice, a sacrifice of himself. A perfect sacrifice of no blemish. And we'll see that again in a minute in later verses. He says this, it says, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. And what do we get? Here it is. Thus securing an eternal redemption. If you underline things in your Bible or highlight things, I would highly recommend you underline that phrase, an eternal redemption. Think about that word redemption for a minute. In the Greek, the word redemption is very closely related to the word for ransom. Redemption and ransom are, are, are basically the same word. And so when you think about the word redemption, think about the word value. How do you give something value? When you ransom something, you, you purchase it. You, you spend money to acquire it. Uh, some of you uh, might be coupon clippers. Do we have any coupon clippers here today? And you clip those coupons and you're really excited because you're going to save like 30 cents on orange juice and you're just stoked on it. You're laughing, but I know you're actually really excited. That, like 30 cents on orange juice, that's amazing. You look down at the bottom of the coupon, there's a little small print. What does it say? It says, no cash value, only redeemable upon purchase of X, Y, or Z, right? Redeemable. This, this coupon doesn't really have any value in and of itself, but when you take it to the store with the orange juice and you make the transaction, well, now all of a sudden it has this value. When the Bible talks about redemption, it's talking about taking us from a place where we're broken and flawed and dirty and just messed up and God giving us tremendous amount of value that we're purchased, that we're, 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 we're able to know that our lives have meaning. In fact, when you see the word redemption, you could even think about this question. How do I know that my life counts? How do I know that my life has meaning? And the thing is, 
what the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus gives to us is an eternal redemption. But in the meantime, you and I, were so prone. We, we know we want redemption. We know that we want our lives to matter. And so we look for it in other things. Some people look for redemption in religion. They turn to religion. And religion, I'm using this term pejoratively, meaning I'm just going to try to do more good deeds than I do bad deeds. And if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, if I know that I'm a quote-unquote good person, then I'll know that my life matters and I have value. And you can find this religious mindset in all of the world religions. There's even a Christianized version of it where basically the message of the gospel is, is, is twisted and turned into something that it's not. They say instead of that Jesus came to die to give you his grace and to forgive you of your sins, it turns into a, hey, you gotta be a really good person. You gotta go to church, then God will love you. If you do this, then God will love you. That's not the gospel, friends. The gospel is that it's by grace we have been saved through faith, not of works, that God loved us even when we were at our worst. I'm more convinced now than ever too that there's a secularized version of religion that people who would call themselves agnostics or atheists have a morality. And if you don't tightly adhere to the morality of the day, then you're a bad person and you're basically worthless. People turn to all sorts of things looking to give their life meaning. If it's not religion and, and doing good, it might be something like achievements. <coughs> people want to know that their life matters, and so they strive to succeed in, let's say, business. If I could just do this much of gross profits a year, if I could just have this many employees, if I could just penetrate into this market, then if I could just have these sorts of business awards or achievements, then I would know that my life matters. For others, it's education. I need another piece of paper. I need another degree saying you're smart and you know lots of things about lots of things. And if I could just achieve a certain education level, well, then I know that my life has meaning. Others, the achievement, maybe it's, it's, you know, things like sports or fitness or health, whatever it might be. It can take on all sorts of different forms, but, but the only way I'm going to know that my life really matters is if I achieve, if I get past some bar. The problem with that is it either ends in despair because you didn't get past the bar or it ends in pride because you did and you think that you did it yourself. Other people turn to relationships. How do I know that my life matters? I, I, I turn to relationships. For, for many in our culture, it is the romantic relationship. If I could just find the right spouse, if I could just find the right boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, domestic partner, whatever you're looking for, then I would know that my life matters, right? What's, what's the line? You know, you complete me. And, and it's ridiculous to think because that, that idea of, you know, I'm incomplete by myself. You, think, about the, think about that message that our culture preaches. You are incomplete by yourself. If you're alone, you're nothing. You're incomplete. Isn't that disgusting? The, the Bible says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. The Bible talks a lot about how marriage is a beautiful picture of the, the, the relationship between Jesus and his church, his, his bride, the Bible says. But the Bible is revolutionary and radical in its affirmation of people who are single. If you are a single person today, you are not a second-class citizen or half of a person. I don't care what the culture says. You are a complete person created in the image and likeness of God. Amen? So, so, so don't buy into that cultural myth. If you get married, great. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians talked about, man, I wish you could all be like me, single, free to minister to the nations, travel around unencumbered by the, he calls it burdens. Like, well, that's kind of, I'm not gonna use that word. You know, my dear burden, writing a love card for Valentine's Day, right? Don't do that. That's bad. Don't follow Paul for, for that kind of romantic advice. 
For others, it's not the spouse, but it's actually their kids. If I could just have the perfect kids, maybe, maybe I didn't live up to my achievements. I don't think I'm gonna do the accomplishments, but boy, am I ever gonna put the pressure on my kids too. Maybe I didn't do well in sports. Maybe I didn't do well in school. Maybe I didn't do well in business, but I'm gonna put this insurmountable, uh, uh, unaccomplishable bar, this, this weight on my kids, and then they're gonna have to live with it, and then they'll succeed, and they'll achieve, and when they do so, then I'll know that my life really matters. For others, it's just the community. I'm gonna get part of a community. It's gonna be part of a, a neighborhood or maybe it's gonna be part of a business community. Whatever it is, people look for their value in relationships. But the problem is the only relationship that's truly going to complete you is relationship with Jesus Christ. Every single other human being cannot complete you. They are also just a human with their own sins, their own struggles, their own flaws. And others look for redemption in just experiences. And by the way, somebody pointed out to me after the first experience that that spells the acronym RARE. I didn't do that on purpose. I accidentally became a Baptist preacher this morning. I did not mean to do that. But if that helps you remember it, that's awesome. Some people live for experiences. Maybe if I just travel the world and I see the Grand Canyon and I climb Mount Everest and I, I you know, go over Niagara Falls in a barrel or whatever it might be, if I just have enough uh, experiences, then I can look back on my deathbed and say, yep, I've been there, I've done that. Now my life has value and my life has meaning. For some, it's just partying. Honestly, that's, that's for, for people who really uh, embrace the party scene, whether it's drinking or you know, drugs, uh, it's just that experience. I want to live life to the fullest. I want to go to every music festival. I want to try every substance. I just want to have these experiences because without it, I don't know that my life really has value or meaning. Friends, there's nothing wrong with seeking experiences like traveling the world. There's nothing wrong with wanting to achieve in education or business. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have a good relationship. But if any of those things becomes your ultimate source of redemption, your ultimate source of value, they will leave you empty. And how about this for value? How about this? You want to know that your life matters? God sent his son, his only son, his perfect son, to live a life free from sin, to go to a cross, to, to spill his blood to the last drop, to purchase you, to redeem you, to ransom you out of sin and folly and darkness and destruction and to bring you into his family, to bring you into his kingdom and to say, you belong to me, you are mine and I love you and no matter what anybody else says or does, nothing can change it. How about that for some value? That the God who created the universe loved you and sent his son to die in your place for your redemption. That won't disappoint you. That won't leave you hanging. Amen? So the blood of Jesus buys us uh, an eternal redemption. The second thing we see is this idea of a clean conscience. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. I want to just pause for a minute and address that phrase. Okay, ashes of a heifer. Burned cow ashes, right? In the Old Covenant, there would be burnt offerings, and their ashes, you know, if you offer the sacrifice, you'd burn it, and then when someone needed to be cleaned from their defilement, from their sin, they would put ashes on them. I mean, like, can you just imagine that, right? You're like, I just, I'm really struggling. I feel guilty lately. I need to meet with a pastor. You're like, hey, Pastor Aaron, can we meet up? I'm like, totally. We talk for a while. You're like, look, I feel dirty. I feel defiled. I'm like, 
hold that thought. I got to go light the barbecue grill and get Bessie. She's ready. She's waiting for this moment. And then we char her. And in a couple of hours, I'm going to dump her ashes on your head. You're going to feel way better. Trust me. <laughs> it seems so strange to us. It seems so arcane to us. But, but, but this was one of the ways that God would show his grace. He would show that there would be a death that would occur. And in that death, there was a provision provided for cleansing. Now, how many of you are thankful we do not live under the old covenant, right? I do not want to have those types of pastoral counseling appointments. This is what he says. If, if, if that worked up to a certain point, if that could sanctify for the purification of the flesh, verse 14, how much more, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? By the way, Jesus had no blemish. Jesus had no sin. Jesus was perfect in everything, which means that his blood is an incredibly valuable purchase for us. Amen? How much more will this blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What he's saying is that under the old covenant, it could only really deal with the external things, but the blood of Jesus can actually get all the way deep down inside of us to the very conscience. And let me just explain a little bit about the conscience because I think sometimes we're confused about it. The conscience really is the part of us, the part of our spirit that God gave to be able to self-evaluate. It's the capacity to self-evaluate whether or not our thoughts and our motives and our actions are in line with the truth of God's word. It's almost like uh, you have different gauges on the dashboard of your car to tell you if things are running properly. The conscience is one of those gauges that God gives to us to help us know, yes, I'm living my life in a way that accords with God or, or no, I'm actually wandering away from God's way. Another thing that's, that we need to understand about the conscience is it is a part of us, not the Holy Spirit. Sometimes there's a mistaken idea because the Holy Spirit brings conviction, the Holy Spirit speaks truths to our hearts, that the conscience is the Holy Spirit. That's not true. There's a, there's a, a verse in, in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about how our consciences agree with the Holy Spirit. The Bible differentiates those two. Yes, the Holy Spirit speaks to us, convicts us of sin, but there's also a part of us that God designed to line up with that. A third thing I want you to understand is that our, our conscience can be strong or it can be weak. Someone whose conscience is strong understands very clearly the, the foundation they stand on. They know the difference between right and wrong and they are uh, not scandalized by maybe certain behaviors. Others have maybe a weaker conscience and there's things that they are free to do in Christ but maybe they don't because to do so makes them feel like maybe they're sinning or maybe they're displeasing God. A long extended uh, discussion of that in Romans 14 that the Apostle Paul talks about but there's strong consciences and weak consciences and then number four, there's what the Bible calls a seared conscience or a non-responsive conscience. If you, if you get a bad burn, the nerve endings in that part of your, your skin can be damaged or can be destroyed and then you don't feel anything anymore. God gave us pain in our physical bodies as a, as a good thing. It's a good indicator for us. You put your, your hand on a stove, you pull back because there's pain. Ow. Well, if that is damaged, if, if maybe sometimes people have neurological diseases, they just don't feel pain anymore, how much more damage does that do? It's, like, it's a cycle. It's a downward cycle. It just gets worse and worse and worse. 
And the apostle Paul in 1 Timothy talks about people who have their consciences seared. Their conscience is now unfeeling and non-responsive. And maybe what should bother them or should set off some alarm bells, hey, I'm not living in, in accordance with God's way, we just don't care about anymore. It just doesn't bother us. It just doesn't matter. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, sin. Sin is sin. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know anymore. My conscience is seared. Guys, that's heartbreaking. I think that, that largely, uh, that's what's happened in our culture, by and large, is much of, of what God would define as sin, our consciences have just become seared to. And sadly, that has affected our churches as well. Many God-loving, Bible-believing Christians have their consciences seared. Here's the good news. Whether you have a guilty conscience or a seared conscience, the blood of Jesus is the remedy. For those of you with a seared conscience, the more that you think about the fact that Jesus' blood was spilled for your sin and for my sin, that actually can bring back to life the, proverbially speaking, the, the dead nerves in your conscience. How many of you have experienced that? How many of you have experienced God bringing your conscience back to life in certain ways? I've talked to Christians who maybe had lived uh, very recklessly, very destructive lives, and then as God saved them through Jesus, they've, they've entered into this process of their conscience just being more and more made alive in him. That's good news. Some of you have guilty consciences. Some of you come in here on Sunday. Some of you go to your community groups, and you just have the weight of the world hanging over you, and you just feel dread because you're so guilty and your conscience feels so dirty. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I fell into that pit again. I can't believe I stumbled in this way again. And you feel dirty. And let me tell you, friends, not on my own authority, but on the authority of the word of God, that if you're in Christ, you're clean. If you are in Christ, your conscience is made clean. And no matter how many times Satan tries to remind you of your sin, and your uncleanness, it doesn't matter because whatever Satan knows, Jesus knows too, and he died on a cross pouring out his blood to wash you clean from those sins. Is that good news to anybody this morning? You are clean in Christ Jesus. You're clean in Christ Jesus. Let me just say it again because sometimes you hear it and it just doesn't even, it doesn't taste true to you. You who are in Christ Jesus are clean. And the shame that would want to weigh down your soul was nailed to the cross of Jesus and it doesn't belong to you anymore. That's good news. And we're only halfway through the list of things that Jesus' blood secures for us. I just want you to hear me. Some of you who, who feel burdened by that guilt, burdened by that shame, you have to hear that you're shame-free in Christ and your conscience can be cleaned, freed from, from dead works, as the author of Hebrews says. Dead works, they can be pagan works or they can be religious works that are trying to impress God. You're free from all of that. We're saved by works, not our own. Jesus works. It's finished. Rejoice in that. So Jesus' blood secures for us redemption and cleansing. And verse 15, an inheritance 
Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. There's our word. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then something interesting happens. For where a will is involved. Now, when you think, when you see will here, think last will and testament, right? End of life, I'm writing out my will. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. What's, what's happening here? Something very strange and interesting is happening here where the author of Hebrews kind of takes this left turn and starts talking about a will and an inheritance. I'll read from uh, one scholar, N.T. Wright, who helps shine some good light on this. The word for covenant is the same word in the Greek as will in the legal sense. I looked it up. It's true. The word covenant can also be translated as will, as in the last will and testament. Before somebody dies, they make a will or a covenant, disposing of their assets as they please. This legal document is binding, but obviously it does not come into effect until the death of the testator has been established. With great daring, it seems, the writer now proposes that the new covenant itself only comes into force after the relevant death, which means, of course, the death of Jesus. So what he's saying is this, this idea of a covenant could also be explained as a will. And there's a great inheritance. And the one who needs to die for that inheritance to kick in has died. It's Jesus. So you get an inheritance. Right? Think about it this way. Uh, there's, there's like a, a movie plot, right? There's a common movie plot of, of like, okay, you're going to get this $20 million inheritance. Your uncle died. But there's one hook. You have to get married in the next 48 hours, right? Is that a, that's a movie, right? Has anybody seen that movie? I don't want to know if I have. I, I just came up with a great movie plot. If not, I'm going to sell it. The idea of, you know, you have to do something. You have to jump through some hoops. You have to get something in line in order to receive this inheritance. Listen, if you got a letter like that that wasn't one of those scam letters, it was legitimate. You've just inherited $20 million from your rich uncle, but you have to do X, Y, or Z. Wouldn't you cancel your plans? Wouldn't you say, hey, you know, buddy, I can't, I can't go golfing with you this weekend. I gotta, I gotta find a wife or whatever it is, right? You'd do whatever it took to, to take advantage of this inheritance that was given to you. What, what is being said here by the author of Hebrews is God has promised us a rich inheritance. God has promised us an eternal inheritance. And because of the death of Jesus, this covenant or this will has now gone into effect and you are all beneficiaries congratulations, you get an inheritance that is nothing short of the very riches of heaven itself. You get eternal life with God. Isn't that good news? I don't care what inheritance you could get on this earth. There is nothing as good as receiving an inheritance of eternal life. And it reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 where he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Even as we go through this move and we're going through closets of stuff, like why did we have this stuff? It's, it's, it's just not as important to us as it once was. I'm sure those of you who have even moved your own house, you've experienced that where you're like, why do I have all this stuff? Because we like to collect stuff. We want to make sure that our lives have value and our lives have meaning. But here's the deal. God is offering you an eternal inheritance. 
If you are a Christian, because of the blood of Jesus, because that blood was spilled for you, you have eternal life. You get the riches of heaven. You get a share in the inheritance that Jesus Christ himself earned. That's a remarkable gift, amen? I take eternal life over temporal treasures any day. Oh wait, I say that, but do you know what sin is? Sin is choosing temporary treasures over the eternal inheritance that we've been given in Jesus. See how valuable this treasure is. See how valuable this inheritance is that we've been given by Jesus. So we have redemption. Our lives have value. We have cleansing. Our, our consciences is cleaned. We have an inheritance. We have eternal life. And then he finishes with this thought of forgiveness. Verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Very interesting. Again, imagine gathering for corporate worship. An animal is killed. There's a bowl of their blood, and, and we sprinkle you with blood. That would not go over well in Seattle. But that's, that's what they're doing. That's their worship practices. Do you know what we do today? We gather around this table where there's bread and there's wine. And we speak to you, this is the blood of the new covenant that was poured out for you. Taste and eat, receive the grace of God. I'm thankful to live under this new covenant. I'm thankful that it's not a, a physical sprinkling with blood, but it's a, a washing of the very deepest part of who we are by the blood of Jesus. They sprinkled them with the blood in the same way, verse 21, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let me just talk about this phrase forgiveness for a minute because an objection could come up at this point. Some might want to say, all this shedding of blood, it's very, again, barbaric. It's very archaic. Why do we have to be doing all these sacrifices? Is the God of the Bible some bloodthirsty sacrifice? You know, just this violence monger? Why can't you just forgive? Just let it go. But see, to say that is to misunderstand, fundamentally misunderstand the nature of forgiveness. Friends, I want you to understand something. Number one, forgiveness is always costly. Forgiveness always costs somebody something. If I borrowed your car for the afternoon and drove it recklessly and wrapped it around a tree and totaled your car, what's going to happen? Somebody has to pay for that. Either I'm going to pay for it, I'm going to work off the debt that I've now accrued, or, you know, we call that justice, or if you take that further, it could be revenge. You're going to come find me and take out of me what you are owed. Or the person whose car was wrecked is going to forgive the debt. Either way, someone has to pay. Let me use another analogy. Let's say that I went around slandering you and damaging your reputation. This is not a, a monetary thing. It's not a car. It's not a physical possession. But your, your, your reputation is damaged. Now people don't look at you the same way and people think bad thoughts about you. How is that going to be made right? 
Either I'm gonna you know, do the just thing and go back and say, sorry, I was lying, I slandered, I wasn't, I wasn't speaking right of them. Or again, revenge, you could go revenge. I'm gonna get my reputation back out of you. I'm gonna beat you down and force you to say that what you said was untrue. Or there can be forgiveness. Jesus knows my reputation. My identity is secure in him. I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let that go. Forgiveness is always costly. Forgiveness always costs somebody something. Ray Stedman, a pastor and a commentator, says this, sin cannot be set aside, even by a loving God, without a death occurring. His judicial sentence, the soul who sins is the one who die, must be carried out. By sprinkling the blood of an animal on the people, Moses is saying that God would accept a substitution. That's grace. God would accept a substitution as a temporary reprieve until the true substitute should come. The people must realize that sin is serious since only death can relieve it. Forgiveness is always costly. If you're gonna forgive somebody, it's gonna feel like a form of dying, isn't it? Anybody ever had to do that? Somebody's hurt you, somebody's done something, and and everything in you wants to go after revenge. But you forgive. It's a death. Which is why death is involved in forgiveness. Second thing is, these, these animals that died, that was costly. Animal sacrifice is costly. Think about people living in an agrarian or or agricultural society. These goats, these bulls, these animals that were offered were their very lifeblood. These these goats or these cows would be where they get milk from and they would get meat from and they would use these animals to pull their carts. I mean, this this is very essential to their livelihood. I think you and I, unfortunately, in our giving, our practices of giving, we miss out a little bit because we swipe a debit card and magic bank points go from my account to somebody else's account, right? But, but think about it this way. What if you showed up to church and you just took your laptop computer and you dropped it in the offering bucket? Well, but Pastor Aaron, I use that for work all the time. Exactly. Exactly. You bring your car, drive it up, right? You know, just drive it right into Pastor Travis's office. Here, here's my car. I'm giving it to the church. Oh, but I use that for, for work. I use that to drive my, my family and my kids around. Exactly. The people in the Old Testament, when they would sacrifice these animals, they would understand just how costly forgiveness really is. And all of this is a foreshadowing. All of this points us to the the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate death, the death of Jesus. That Jesus' sacrifice was unbelievably costly. That his sacrifice was incredibly valuable. We can't even begin to imagine the value of the blood of Jesus shed for us. My great fear for any of you who have been a Christian for any length of time is this, that the idea of Jesus dying on a cross, shedding his blood for our sins becomes rote or becomes routine. Yep, I've heard it before. Isn't it great? Jesus died on a cross for my sins. Friend, do you understand the magnitude of what I just said? The eternal Son of God poured out his lifeblood that you and I might be forgiven of all of our sins. That the the way that we feel when we've forgiven you, that feeling of death, imagine what God himself went through. But friends, that's just how good our God is. That's just how loving and gracious and merciful and compassionate our God is, that he was willing to take that death in himself that we might be forgiven. Pastor and author Tim Keller says it this way, the God of the Bible, 
is not like primitive deities who demanded our blood for their wrath to be appeased. Rather, this is a God who becomes human and offers his own lifeblood in order to honor moral justice and merciful love so that he can someday destroy all evil without destroying us. Why did Jesus have to die in order to forgive us? There was a debt to be paid. God himself paid it. There was a penalty to be borne. God himself bore it. Forgiveness is always a costly form of suffering. Some of you are Christians and you're embarrassed by this talk of the cross all the time, the cross and blood and sacrifice. Why do we always gotta talk about these things? Can't we talk about happier things like having positive self-esteem and managing your finances God's way? Listen, all those things are great, but we cannot escape the fact that ours is a blood-soaked faith. And if it was not for the blood of Jesus Christ, we have no hope, none whatsoever, other than the blood of Jesus We can talk about relationships. We can talk about how to manage your money. We can talk about having a healthy self-esteem, but only once we're standing on the firm foundation of knowing that our sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Some of you are not Christians and you're resistant to this idea about receiving grace, receiving forgiveness. Some Some of you are feeling those effects of that guilty, dirty conscience that I talked about a minute ago. Friends, I love you. Jesus loves you more. Bring your sins to him, experience his cleansing, experience his forgiveness. Receive this eternal redemption. How to know your your life has value and meaning. Receive this eternal inheritance, knowing that your life will last beyond just this life, but that you will live forever with God in paradise. Receive this gift of grace today. May all of us leave here today with a stronger commitment to the truth that our hope is found nowhere else than in the blood of Jesus. Amen? I'm gonna call you to a time of response. Now we're gonna respond as we do in a variety of ways. The first is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. And uh, as the financial stewards come forward, let me just remind you, we do not give these gifts in order to earn God's love or to impress him. We give in loving response to what he's already done for us. Amen? And so, by the way, if you brought your laptop and wanna drop it in, just make sure you back up your files first. I'm just kidding. But, but think about this idea of a, of a costly sacrifice, an act of worship that shows, God, I understand that you've given me everything and I wanna worship you in response. And while they're collecting the offering, let me go over a few discussion questions uh, here on the screen. And, and by the way, they're in your handouts as well. First question is this, what is your reaction to the idea that the Christian faith is a blood-soaked faith? Number two, Jesus' blood gives us an eternal redemption giving our lives value and meaning. How does this truth challenge and or encourage you? Number three, Jesus' blood cleanses our consciences. So where is your conscience sensitive and where is it possibly seared and how is Jesus asking you to respond? Number four, Jesus' blood gives us a rich, eternal inheritance. How does that eternal perspective help you, face the, help you as you face the trials of each day? And number five, forgiveness is always costly and none more so than the forgiveness purchased by Jesus' blood. How valuable is Jesus' death to you? How can it become even more valuable? And then a couple of things to, to pray about as we 
endeavor to be a people of prayer. Thank God that Jesus' blood has secured our ultimate redemption and given us a clean conscience. And then pray for those who don't yet know Jesus to come to know his grace through the blood of Jesus. In addition to responding through giving, we're gonna respond through a celebration of the Lord's table. Jesus said, this, this cup is the new covenant written in my blood. So today as you take of the bread and you dip it into the cup, my prayer is that you would be reminded that Jesus' blood has given us all of these great things. I pray that you just rejoice. I pray that you would celebrate and, and just party a little bit because <laughs> we've been given such good gifts in Christ Jesus, amen? This eternal redemption, this clean conscience, come, taste, receive. This, this table we gather around, this is not something we do, but this is a way that God ministers his grace to us. If you're not a Christian, I would ask you to abstain from the table if you're a guest or a visitor, you're welcome to join us if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus for your salvation. If you're not a Christian, better than abstaining, give your sin to Jesus and join us at the table as a member of the family for the first time. And we're gonna sing. Elizabeth and the team are gonna lead us in songs that celebrate the blood of Christ. And so I invite you to lift your voices and sing loudly the praises of God today. I invite you to stand if you would, and I'll pray. And we'll begin our, our time of singing in response. Father God, thank you for your blood. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. Thank you that in the blood of Jesus, we have redemption and we can know that our lives have value. And we have a clean conscience, even despite the sinful things we've done. And we have forgiveness of our sins that was purchased by the costly blood of Christ. And we have an eternal inheritance knowing that, that we'll live forever with, with our God. God, I pray now as we sing and as we celebrate and as we respond, I pray we would do so with a heart of worship. I pray we would do so with a heart of joy. And I pray we would do so with a heart of gratitude, never taking for granted the costliness of this gift that was given. Fill our lips with your praises now. We sing all of this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Church, let's begin our, our time of singing in response now.